missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. I know we've been gone for a little bit of time. It's a whole new year. 2024 is now here, and it's been here for two weeks. I mean, we're a little behind the eight ball on this, but it's fine, because tonight we're going to check on our darts, clear up some more fusion confusion, and talk about whether we have some alien lights or misinformation fight. We got so much to talk about, so let's do it. In 2022, NASA launched the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, with the goal of seeing what happens when you punch an asteroid in the face with a satellite, which is so cool. This is one of the greatest sentences I've ever written in these copies. They were able to punch an asteroid, specifically Dimorphos, which ended up affecting its orbit fairly significantly, but we still really aren't sure what happened. So, the European Space Agency is launching the HERA mission, consisting of a spacecraft and two small satellites, which are going to both orbit and land on the asteroid to see what happens when you crash a spacecraft into an asteroid. This is like the most human thing ever. We crashed something into it, but we, we, we didn't get to see it. So now we're sending an entire mission up just to go look at it. Is Bruce Willis on this mission? That's all I want to know. Ooh, he should be. Right. I was going to say, I just was watching Don't Look Up again, like a few weeks ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe we should kind of figure out these trajectories. So for me, I was thinking about like how fascinating it is when you're trying to predict slamming a spacecraft into an asteroid and which direction it's going to go. Just because uh, we always kind of model these kind of collisions in an ideal sense, like a perfect surface and things like that. So you can kind of get an estimate of like when you impart energy on something, where it's going to go. But then you think about the surface of an asteroid. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be so many craters because there's so much in space already hitting it and knocking pe- pieces off. So, yeah, it, it really does kind of make sense to get a closer view to see what's going on so we can kind of refine models. Yeah, your point's really important here, Steph, because everything is is colliding out in yeah. the solar system, right? I mean, that's how planets are formed. That's basically how everything that we have been able to observe has come into being in some way or you know shape or form. And it is a very human thing for us to want to go and see what kind of damage we did. I kind of think of it uh, a little bit like... Uh, you know, when, when young boys start blowing things up and then run to go see what happened. Right? I mean, I, I mean, blew up stuff too. Right, right, right. But I'm thinking yeah. back in my day, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And uh, we didn't have any girls with us doing that stuff, right? But I actually should have thought of you because uh, you probably blew up way cooler things than I did. You do <laughs> I had it- rockets, model rockets when I was a Right, kid. for sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Um, but, you know, that's exactly what we do, right? It's like, oh, let's put this firecracker in this thing 
let's light it and then we're going to go look at it afterward, right? Like this is just the next step in uh, seeing what we could do, right? I imagine people sitting around the JPL, right? The Jet Propulsion, Jet Propulsion Laboratory just thinking, all right, we did this. Now we got to go see what we did, right? And uh, yeah. sort of geeking out on it. So I love it. I love the idea. I mean, we do that all the time on Earth. Right. We just don't talk about it too much because you can just go to your your experiment and kind of measure everything up close. But when it's so far away... Actually, that's a yeah. really good point, right? I mean, we don't talk about experiments in space as much as we talk about um, like observations in space, right? Yeah. This is an experiment. So how do you know whether the experiment was successful or not? You always go and look at the aftermath, right? Yeah. Like you look at the data. But it's one thing when you look at data from afar. It's another thing when you look at it under a microscope. And this would be the equivalent, right, of looking at these data under a microscope. Mm -hmm. I am a little surprised that we didn't already have something up there like filming. That could have been the pay-per-view event of the year. Send the, the film crew up in advance. They get the angles. And then you can watch a thing run into an asteroid. That's right. I would have paid for that. They got to scout locations, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just kind of get flashback to, I, I think it takes the right people funding the project and whether you're going to watch it. And mm. then a few years ago, there was a Tesla launched into space and there was quite a production around that. Didn't run into an asteroid, so. No, it did not. Maybe notes for the next launch. That, that we know of. Has anybody That's true. Has right. anyone, not yet. Has anyone checked on that <laughs> Tesla lately? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine if that ends up being the thing that like deflects an extinction level asteroid just because it's out there floating around? He, he, Elon will be insufferable if he ends up saving humanity because there's a car that runs into an asteroid on accident. Will, will be. I could just imagine yeah. and there will there's cameras there already, right? So uh you know, we're just going to see the the test crash dummy with its arm waving <laughs> as it hits the asteroid and knocks it off course. Again, just just go rewatch Don't Look Up or watch it for the first time if you haven't seen it. Is Hera an acronym? It's not, is it? I don't no, think so. No, it is a Greek goddess. Right, but I was just hoping that yeah. there was an acronym in there too. I no. feel like someone could make it happen. Mm -hmm. They also didn't really explain why they chose Hera. Um, no. Other than it's probably the European Space Agency's uh, naming convention and Hera was the next one. <sighs> This is why they should have me employed. Yeah. We probably would lose a podcast host, though. Well, I'd be back pretty quick because I think I would be fired almost immediately. So. Oh, that's 100% true. I feel like you could do yeah. both. <laughs> I can really have it all. You can have it all. <laughs> you can have your cake and eat it, too. Yep. It's been a while since we talked about fusion, tokamaks, and our favorite state of matter. Steffi, what is that state of matter? It's plasma. Don't it's call it charged plasma. particles or ionized gas. It's plasma. Okay. Hey, I, now we know. See, that's why we got the segment named thusly. But fusion's in the news with the development of a new tungsten diverter for Korea's K-Star Tokamak. And now it's time where I stop talking and hand things over to our favorite fusioneer, Dr. Deem. Dr. Deem clears up the fusion confusion. Okay, do we know what a diverter is? Yeah, so this was new to me because we yeah. had never actually talked about yeah. specific parts of the tokamak, right? right? We just talked about so the excited. tokamak, and I was like, oh, look at this. We got something to talk about. So tell us what a diverter is. Okay, so we've actually gotten really, really good at confining things so hot, the plasma, 10 times hotter than the sun, 
that we run into this problem where you have to kind of release the exhaust, just kind of like a car has an exhaust pipe. We need to work on how do you exhaust the uh, impurities like the dirt and the extra heat from a tokamak. And that's what a diverter actually does. It's essentially an exhaust pipe for a tokamak. Does it need a muffler? Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I mean, I, I was actually, that was actually <laughs> yeah. a real question, but it's it a really good funny. question. That's why I laughed because it's, it is a really good question. If you look at the bottom, it's, it's going to look like a ring where it kind of sucks things out. Okay. And there's actually a cryo pump. It's like a cryogenic vacuum pump that sucks all that extra heat, the particles out. Um, the one thing that's really important about these diverters is that they have to withstand these really super high heat loads for a long time. So it comes down to two things, like how do you optimize your magnetic bottle to shoot the exhaust down in that region? And then how do you manufacture or pick the right materials um, that can withstand that? And so that's why it's really exciting for this, because a lot of our experiments right now rely on carbon walls, or many of them, because they can withstand those high heat loads. But then the issue becomes if you want to put it in a fusion power plant, it traps fuel in there, um, which is problematic. So that's why we're going to the metal walls. And so that's what this upgrade is, is using tungsten so we can go to longer pulses. So, I'm so excited. what uh, material is the diverter in the Pegasus made out of? Oh, yeah. That's an excellent question. So ours is not a pumped, but we do have a diverter region and it is, we use stainless steel because ours doesn't have to run so very long, but we actually coat our stainless steel with titanium. We have balls of titanium that we're just putting a current through and it's evaporating titanium everywhere because that sucks up any dirt too. So instead of us putting a cryogenic pump, we just have a metal that kind of sucks things out. You yeah. just have like a titanium haze. Yeah. It, it just looks, it looks pretty cool when you look inside. I'm sure. Because <laughs> um, it's just, everything's kind of covered in titanium. And then the way that the plasma kind of moves dirt around, it kind of deposits it on that surface. So it looks like rainbows, like a rainbow metal. Ooh, um, oh, that's pretty cool. We, yeah, that's we why use, you chose it, isn't it? <laughs> obviously. <laughs> yeah. So we actually call this thin film that has like all this deposited stuff from the plasma on it. Uh, tokamakium. Yes, sorry. Nice. Of course you Everyone do. in the of field. Ev do. That's like everyone in the field. Because it's just made up of a bunch of random stuff. So <laughs> it's ran it's made up of tokamak. Yeah, exactly. I get it. Yeah. So it sounds to me like uh like you've got a future in cookware development right, if uh if this whole yeah if this whole fusion thing doesn't work out right yeah can yeah. you get me a frying pan's worth of tokamakium i mean it's probably really toxic like it has a bunch of random metals but in i don't, don't think know. you <laughs> yeah we'd have to survey it um the other thing i want to point out that's interesting about these diverters too because we're going to tongues from carbon to tungsten is there was a question a few years ago is if we could actually do it and the reason being is anytime the plasma hits the wall, you get some dirt from that surface to go back into the plasma. And so when they first started running with metal walls, they got really poor performance because metal is heavier or has more protons in the nuclei than carbon. 
So heavier materials, heavier dirt would go inside and it would cool everything down pretty quickly. Um, so we kind of had to go back to the drawing board to kind of optimize the magnetic bottles to make sure we're kind of reducing those plasma material interactions. Um, and that's when we got those really impressive results from JET, the Joint European Taurus, a couple of years ago, and a couple of other devices too. So this raises an interesting question just about science in general, and that is yeah. um, your experiments never finished, right? Um, yeah. That's what's interesting. And so like when I run a biology experiment, right, a biomedical experiment, right, there is an endpoint, and then we look at things. And we may need to run that experiment again, right, to refine it, but it's not the same because there are endpoints. Yours, and so it's easy to decide where the publication of data needs to happen, right, yeah. um, in a pretty regular way. How do you decide with a tokamak experiment, what is publishable data versus what is not publishable data? And, you know, sort of what is that minimum publishable unit look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so there's kind of two things that you look for. One, is it a new result? Well, a new result from your experiment in a different regime, or is it giving insight on some physics phenomenon that you've never seen before? Or the other thing is comparing the experimental data to, to modeling. Right. That's super important too. Um, so we kind of look like that, look at it from those aspects. So within that, we kind of break down to what is the question we're trying to answer? Um, so I'll give an example of mine is, can we actually inject microwaves in my type of experiment without them getting reflected everywhere? So that's kind of a question we're investigating. And then you start to run experiments to kind of piece together the picture. So it's kind of bringing it in from like a prediction standpoint so we can run models and then follow it up with, okay, here's what we predicted would happen and here's the, the experimental data and to kind of compare that. So it's kind of what we're looking at. The other thing that I found fascinating talking to you know other scientists is unless you are in our field, it's kind of like we have this big device we call the experiment. And people are used to, when they're in science, their device that they perform experiments on is just you turn it on and you kind of change the input parameters of like mm -hmm. what you're using to test. But every time we turn on our device, it's a new experiment. Every single time. Because there's so many different knobs that you can change. Yeah, that's interesting because, um, you know, some people could, would refer to what you have, your tokamak as a tool. Yes. for experiments, right? And yep. I, thinking of it in line, you know, in terms of what I do or have done in the past, you know, we study muscle mechanics in yeah. in mice um, and in rats and um, with diseases. And we want to know whether or not their muscles are strengthening or weakening with progression of disease and so on and so forth. And so we can hook them up to a machine to measure physiology of muscle contractions, right? And there are so many different knobs on that, and but it's not a new experiment. It's a data right. collection tool. Whereas your tokamak is both a data collection tool and an experiment in and of itself, and that kind of blows yeah. my mind. Yeah, there's that's why we have to rerun, do a lot of repetition at times because you can get just tiny changes in how you set up your magnetic field, or even in like. How I use the same parameters every time I set up my magnetic yeah. field, just to be clear, right? Because right? well, I, I like, I like uniformity. I like consistency. Yeah. You must have super fancy power supplies. I'm impressed <laughs> because anytime, and people don't really kind of realize this. Anytime you get some fluctuations in power levels in your lights, it, you can't tell. Um, in ours, because we're making 
big magnetic fields. You can tell in some places. Oh, yeah. You would hate right. to run experiments in my building because in my building, we get <laughs> flickering power all the time. and Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. It wouldn't be very precise. And we can make it as precise as we, as we can. But every time, you know, there's just some kind of uncertainty at times. Nothing's perfect. Can we also talk about why you had to go to D.C. a couple weeks ago? Is that something you want to talk about on the podcast? Oh, why did I go to D.C.? Oh, I got an award. Mazel yeah. Tov. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. What, what, tell us We're about. not talking to just any fusion scientist on this podcast. This is an award-winning fusion it, scientist right yeah, here. Yeah, the Fusion Engineering Excellence Award. That's awesome. Yeah. So what for is this? 2023. So what yeah. uh, What does this mean? What does this mean for you? I I got to go to D.C. and I, and I got the award. And who there gave out the award? That's what I'm trying to get at. Oh, yeah. Hey, Fusion Power Associates. Awesome. Yep. Fantastic. Ooh. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of a. It's an kind of like your Golden Globes, right? Yeah, I don't it know. It was uh, it was the so. science communication on Science Night that put you over the edge, right? Right. <laughs> it had to be. Uh-huh. It had to be. You know, I don't want to call it the Science Night bump yet, but there you go. You know, you've never been given this award before. That's I right. have That's not. A good point. That's a good point. <laughs> that is a good point. Good point. Yeah, and then I got to go to a bunch of museums. I got to go to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Every oh, time I'm in town, man. I go to that. It's amazing. Which one? The one on the mall? So I went to the one on the mall. I have yet to go to the one by the airport. And oh, really, you have to go to that really one. I really want to go. That one is the best. Yeah. It's amazing. That's what I've heard. See, we're just different people. I always go to Julia Child's Kitchen every time I'm in D.C. Oh, that's, I've never been there. That's my pilgrimage site. Is Julie Child's kitchen? Julie Child's kitchen and uh, the puffy shirt from uh, Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah, I get it. That's true. Oh. And uh, and Archie shirt. Archie Bunker's uh, recliner. Yeah, they got they got. Well, I don't care about that, but uh, they got Rocky's robe upstairs. They do. They do. Um, oh. Bill Nye's Bill Nye's jacket. Um, yeah, but so you know, uh, science engineering and aeronautics is fine too. They like, have the sure. they have the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, right, the one that yeah. flew over Fort McHenry. Yeah, they also have Rocky's Rocky's robe. I mean, one of those things is more culturally significant. Okay. Uh, I'll let the listener decide. In the Air and Space Museum, they now have Spock's ears. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Okay, now I'm back on board. Yeah. Okay, that works. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's just take a minute to reflect on how Spock's ears are in a national uh, uh, engineering museum. And listen to a message from a podcast that I think you're gonna enjoy. In a world where the tiniest elements make the biggest impact, where curiosity leads to groundbreaking discoveries, it's time to dwell deeper than ever before. Welcome to Under the Microscope, the podcast that zooms into the captivating world of materials and nanoscience. With each episode, you meet a scientist working in the field of materials or nanoscience. On Under the Microscope, the scientist candidly talks about their career journey, their favorite research experiment, and their three wishes to improve the world. Check out Under the Microscope on your favorite podcast app. We've covered our fair share of stories that contain kernels of truth, but just 
pick up steam and change so much by the time it makes popular reporting outlets like YouTube and especially in social media that they're just barely recognizable. This story it starts out innocently enough with an opinion piece from 2021 by astrophysicist Dr. Ari Loeb. Basically, he thought that planets with artificial lights would easily be picked out using advanced telescopes like JWST, which at the time was not launched yet, but now is very much launched, because they would look very different from planets that are just reflecting the light from their star. And that if there happened to be a civilization on the planet Proxima b, a planet in the habitable zone of Proxima Centauri, which is only about four light years away, we'd be able to pick up a city about the size of Tokyo, which is interesting in its own right, that we now have uh, space telescopes that are able to pick up cities the size of Tokyo on a planet that is four light years away, if they exist. That's the biggest caveat, if it's there. And after this, NASA was basically like, yeah, well, sure, we'll do it. Well, we'll launch this JWST, we'll point it in that direction, and we'll get back to you. Somewhere along the way, social media spun this issue so much that as recently as last week, you can see a YouTube video and stories on social media that are basically confirming advanced life on another planet. One of these titles is Terrifying City Found on Proxima B on a YouTube channel that is like, I'm not going to call it legitimate, but it's more legitimate than some of the things you would normally see doing this kind of thing. So how did we get here? How do we get this pretty cool science story with not like actual evidence, but, you know, reflecting on on how advanced our, our engineering has become to alien invasion? I don't know. I don't know how we got there. I don't know how we got there. Honestly, I don't know how we got there. Do we think it's because of the fall apart of the Philadelphia Eagles defense? Probably. Uh, yeah. Probably. Yeah. No, I think it's because the only star power in the NFL now is a Chiefs fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One yep. of those Chiefs fan. One specific Chiefs fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So these these articles were very interesting. How much it exploded, the direction it took, um, the fact that they just jumped to terrifying. There's going to be cities out there. Um, right. Because really what they were talking about is a different way to measure if you're getting natural or reflected light. Mm-hmm. Or, sorry, reflected natural light or artificial light. Um, that At the heart of it, as far as I could tell, was the origin story of all of this, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Um, yep. And so when you're looking at ways to kind of measure this light, or kind of infer if it's natural or artificial. There's there's the one way that we often go to, which is using spectroscopy. Um, it's you can use this at home where you have like a prism and you put it uh, at sunlight and you see a continuous rainbow, right? That's kind of that's splitting up the prism is splitting it up into the components of the natural light. Um, we have little gratings that we use um, in space or in my experiment too, that do something very similar and more refined. And what you can tell is if it's not natural light, there'll be gaps in that spectrum. And that gaps in the spectrum will kind of infer, give you the information about the, what made up the source of the light. And so like an example of this is if you look at the sun, which is mostly hydrogen and helium, you'll see characteristic signatures of light that was emitted from just those kind of elements that are in the sun. That's expensive 
to have that instrumentation. So that's why they were excited about like if we're having more sophisticated sophisticated uh, telescopes, this could tell us this information then. But then these other people posited, well, you can actually, you don't have to re- like re- use these um, sophisticated diagnostics or measurements. You could actually look at how the light kind of gets dimmer as the source moves away from you. And that relies on if it's being natural, if it's being emitted from the source, it's going to be brighter at a certain distance than if it was a reflected light that takes a longer pathway off of an object. But it still doesn't explain how we got to this mania. Right? It's not. Yeah, well, yeah, we're, we're <laughs> no. setting up the, this is the innocuous little science story. <laughs> well, this is where it all starts, right? Yeah. Yeah. One little spark. <laughs> is there more? That's right. Are you going to sing to us? Yeah. I'm not are, you, gonna are, sing are there the aliens figment. in this song? I'm not going to sing the figment into imagination song. If oh. you don't know it, you I don't, don't know, know it. it. That's right. Can you still oh. hear, can you still hear that song inside uh, the Epcot ball? Yes, but it's sung by, uh, it's sung by Eric Idle now, nice. not, not the Dreamfinder. Ah, okay. Well. I mean, if you look at articles, sorry, my brain moves all over. Um, if you look at articles that are like, guess what? We found a cooler way to like measure if something is being emitted from a surface or it's reflected. Versus, oh my gosh, there's terrifying alien cities, and we can measure them now. <laughs> Yes. I love that they're not just alien cities, too. They're terrifying. (laughs) But I guess you deal with this all the time in Fusion, Steffi, because you can release uh, the fact that you've put a little bit of a titanium pan at the bottom of your tokamak, and now people are talking about how fusion energy is within weeks. Yeah, so that's very tricky that we're navigating right now, because it takes a long time to develop any energy source, let alone fusion, Mm -hmm. okay? And a lot of monetary investment. But when you're trying to get people to invest in a concept now with private funding, it's kind of hard sometimes to be like, this is a long-term investment. So that's why you kind of promise things that are going to happen just around the corner. Oh, I love Do you actually put that in your proposals? Just around the, hey, just around the river bend. No, I just say, this is what we need to investigate. Right. And that's very similar to how NIH grants work too, right? I mean, like you would never get funded to do something that you don't already know what the outcome is going to be, right? Or at least have a 90% confidence in what that outcome is going to be, right? Um, And that's, yeah, it's terrible. Um, That's different, fundamentally different though than the National Science Foundation, right? Which is a discovery, more of a discovery institute, right? Where you can just do some science for science sake and you have some potential outcomes right but you don't have to have a deliverable in the same way nih money because it's directly tied to human health oh. um isn't usually favorable for fishing expeditions so to speak yeah that's a really good point it's like where you get your money sometimes determines what questions you're going to answer and i'm not saying as like sponsored by a company i'm saying this is it high risk high reward right or something that is more reserved less risk taking to get the the result so what we're saying is there's not a there's probably not a terrifying space city up there on proxima b but we didn't say there was a hundred percent certainty that's true that there's not because it's a science (laughs) right and we also just don't know we just don't know whether or not we're not seeing the light that's true 
right? Wait, yeah. Are we bringing back this terrifying alien concept? <laughs> well, what if they're not using LED lights? Like I, now, I'm putting right. my, my tinfoil hat on. You know, Doctor Loeb said LED lights. What if they're not using LED? Right. What if, what if they're, they're still using, using compact fluorescent? What if they're still using still using incandescent bulbs? You know what I mean? Okay. Ooh. So this is this is what I do for a lot of my outreach. Actually, so one part we do is we have tubes of just a single element, and we have that diffraction grading or spectrometer, and and you can look at a single element light source versus a compact fluorescent versus an LED light, and you mm. can physically see with your eye how the components of the light, when because it splits it up, are different. So what are they using on Proxima and Centauri? That's the question. Just probably a different... Now you're deflecting the light, Dr. Deem. It's, what else are you hiding? It's clearly... They probably have alien technology. It's clearly a halogen bulb. That's all. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I think the fact that we're talking about the light sources used by those on Proxima and Centauri B uh, means that we've come to the end of another edition of the Science Night podcast. But don't worry, we probably got more coming your way. We've not been super reliable this year, but I have a feeling that that is going to change soon. So you're going to want to follow us on social media. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days. Back in my day, it was called Twitter. And you can follow me at James underscore read three. Steffi, where can they find you? You can follow me at Steffi Deem at x slash twitter or starshipping at instagram jason where can we find you you can still find me on the former twitter at organ jm well you can follow the show at cyanite pod and visit our home on the web cyanite.com for all of our social media including our youtube and tiktok page past episodes the things we talk about the people we talk to and don't forget our merch we got a whole page just for merch it's at cyanide.com slash merch why don't you go take a visit over there it's been it's been waiting for you You haven't been there hey it's been years since we've seen you at cyanide.com slash merch go check it out we'll be back soon with a new episode but until then just forget don't forget to turn out the lights proximate centauri you you waste so much energy if you just keep the lights on and then you get all these people looking at you from afar I didn't hear it because I'm using like uh, half of a broken air from a bus. Yeah, you know, it's fine. I'm an anatomist. I know it's fine. Very good. <laughs>